Welcome back to the Grace 412 podcast. It is a new series. It's a new season, a new year that we are launching into as a Grace 412 community. Hopefully you guys have already been able to set up some New Year's resolutions or some new goals. Hopefully uh, you haven't already failed at some of those resolutions or goals. If you saw on social media, I posted a preview to this series talking about the idea of more. This uh, time of year, the, at the core of it, when we talk about resolutions, it is an idea that we are in pursuit of more. We want to have more. We want to do more. We want to accomplish more. We want to be more. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. But what if I told you that our idea of more or our idea of blessing or our idea of abundance may not always be rooted in the truth of God's word? Like, what if we stepped back and recognized that our perspective when it comes to this idea of abundance uh, or more or blessing may not actually be a biblical one? And so we're going to start this series this week that we're calling Abundance, and we're going to hopefully unpack a biblical approach to this idea of more. We're going to talk about what we're actually called to have abundance of. And so I want to warn you, this first week is a strictly Bible study. This is going to lay the groundwork, the foundation for more practical things ahead, but it's so necessary for us to understand how God deals with his people so that we can also better understand Uh, the right perspective that we should have towards God and towards others and towards our stuff and towards our circumstances. And so we're going to talk about the way that the Bible is divided up. Uh, we're going to talk about three different categories, three different scenes, the Old Testament, the which is uh, before Jesus, the Gospels, which is the time of Jesus, and then um, the New Testament, which is what we would kind of currently be living in, the time of the Holy Spirit and God's people, His body, the church. And so scene one, we get things kicked off this year and in this lesson with the truth that God promises earthly blessings to his people. This is a theme that you see throughout the Old Testament. God promises earthly blessing to his people. Uh, You see it in uh, Genesis chapter 4. He talks to Cain and he says, if you do well, would you not be accepted? Even before Genesis chapter 4, at the very beginning, God creates a beautiful creation and then he creates man to enjoy that creation, to cultivate that creation, to walk with God and receive the blessings and abundance that God has to offer. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, Noah found grace or found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But it also says later on in that chapter two times that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So there was this relational aspect that was going on here in regards to God's earthly blessing uh, and Noah's obedience. You see this a little bit more in Genesis chapter 12. He talks to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, The Lord said unto Abram, Get out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you. And then here it is. He says, And I will make you a great nation. I will bless thee. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse you. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. This is a promise that God makes to Abraham that I'm going to give you earthly, physical blessing. And then in Genesis chapter 26, he actually says to Isaac, this is the covenant that I gave to your father, Abraham. 
He's reiterating the promise that he made and the covenant that he made, the earthly blessing and prosperity that he promised to Abraham's people, the Israelite people. And then you have the story of the Israelite people and the entire story of Exodus where God is is actually showing his uh, physical blessing upon the people who keep his commands. He's, he's physically, outwardly, externally showing on the earth his provision and his blessing to the people whose God is Yahweh. That's why all the other nations feared the God of Israel. When you see what other nations said about the nation of Israel, I mean, even Rahab said, our our people feared because of your God. God wanted to show, if you follow me, if you keep my covenant, if you keep your promises to me, I will keep my promises. It was this earthly blessing to show whose people were God's people. At the end of the day, though, this was still only a picture of what was to come. See, a lot of this still hinged on the behavior of uh, the people who God had kept covenant with. Like if, if they did good, God would bless. God even said that to Cain. He said, hey, if you do good, will I not bless you? He says, but if you do evil, sin is crouching at the door. In Exodus 19, when God gives the law to the Israelite people through Moses, he says, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. In Exodus 20, 20, he says that his fear may be upon you so that you sin not. And then in Isaiah chapter one, to the same people, to the Israelite people, he says, if you be obedient, if you be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. This is this idea that there's still separation between God and man and their actions had direct impact upon whether or not God was going to physically and tangibly bless them or not. You see this throughout the Israelite people, even in the story of Judges, that they would honor and worship God and God would bless them. They would fall into a place of rebellion and would go against God, and then God would bring somebody to punish them, a nation to persecute the Israelite people. And then God would raise up a judge that would rescue them and save them from their bondage and free them, and the people would worship God again. And it was this never-ending cycle because their relationship with God and God's physical blessing to them was still in some ways hinged upon their actions. And that is the narrative throughout most of the Old Testament. And this is why the story of Job is so interesting. It's so so counterintuitive. Uh, the entire story of Job, it's it's sort of a precursor to of what was to come because it's 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 in the Old Testament, but it's subtly undoing our understanding of good versus evil, of, of blessing and cursing. Because in the story of Job, you see Job does good and honors God, but trouble still finds him. And we, for time's sake, just do not have the time to dive into the the wisdom uh, literature of Job and what it actually meant and what it represented. But but something we see throughout uh, Job and throughout Proverbs and throughout all of God's dealing with his people in the Old Testament is this. Scene number one, point number one is this. God has always and will always be a God who blesses. He desires to give good things. Look, yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same. Like God, God is the same. He is the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He has not changed and he will not change. His character is good. From the beginning, he is a creator of good things. He created everything and said, this is good. He creates mankind and he says, this is very good. He has relationship with them. He blesses them. 
but we still didn't have the full picture of God. We, we didn't have a full picture of his goodness and blessing. We didn't understand fully his mercy and his grace or his justice and holiness. And we were still the deciding factor in it. And this is why the story continues into scene two, where Jesus changes the narrative on blessing and abundance. See, Jesus comes on the scene to give us a full picture of God. In him was the fullness of God dwelling. We, we see him when we see the Father and vice versa. This is what scripture teaches, that Jesus was the perfect picture of God on display. He was God in the form of a man. And Jesus comes on the scene and he changes this idea of blessing and abundance. In Matthew 10, he says, he that finds his life will lose it and he that loses his life for my sake will find it. He says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's, he's trying to teach them in his ministry what you know about earthly good and earthly abundance and earthly blessing is about to be unhinged. And there's no other story that makes this more perfectly clear than the story in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, we see it in, in verse 1. We'll just read it. It says, Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. His disciples asked, saying, Master, who did sin that this man or his parents that he was born blind? His disciples asked a question that was very natural for the people of that day. Like they could have done well to assume that either this guy or his parents would have sinned for this guy to have been blind. This guy was blind all his life. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered verse three and said, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest. Who sinned, this boy or his parents? And Jesus says, neither one. This man was born blind so that one day I could come here and I could heal him and he would know the fullness of my power and my mercy and my grace toward him and that you would be able to see the works of God be made manifest. Jesus spends his entire ministry doing things like this. He's changing the narrative to say, hey, this is about an eternal work that's being done. This is about a work that involves God's glory and that alone. And it transcends what we know about earthly blessing and curses, about what we know about earthly um, prosperity or persecution. Jesus is changing this narrative, his entire ministry. And then we get to the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, in Luke chapter 22, and Jesus says, this cup is the new testament or the new agreement or the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus says, hey, this is, this is the new way to live. This is the new agreement God has with his people. He had that Mosaic law and he had the Abrahamic covenant and, and he had all these other ways of him interacting with his people. He says, now the way that you have covenant, the way you have relationship, the way you have agreement with God is through my blood. It's through me. This is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. His entire ministry he spent explaining, you don't live for this world anymore. See, specifically the Israelite people, they wanted an earthly king to relieve them from the oppression of Rome. They wanted an earthly warrior conqueror king to, to free them. And Jesus says, hey, I didn't come for that. In, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, I came to establish a new kingdom that is not of this world. And he does just that. He establishes a new way of life, a new kingdom, not of this world. 
So I'm going to pause right here and say there is a ton of theology surrounding the two words that I've used a lot, theology around kingdom and theology around covenant. And believe it or not, I'm actually holding back in this study because there is just a deep dive that we could do on either one, what Jesus means when he's talking about the kingdom, what Jesus means when he's talking about covenant, like, well, are you dispensational? Are you a covenant theologian? Uh, what about, do you believe that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of God? Like we could dive into all of this but it would distract away from the main point. The main point that Jesus is making in his ministry is this. You are no longer living for an earthly kingdom. This isn't about you receiving some kind of earthly blessing. This isn't about you getting health and wealth and prosperity. This isn't just about the people of Israel being freed here on the earth. This is about knowing God. And what's interesting is, is Jesus actually breaks down the walls and says to the people of Israel, you want an earthly king to relieve you from the oppression of your enemies. But what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to open the door so that the enemies that you now know, the Samaritans, the Romans, the people that have oppressed you and warred against you, those people are actually going to be your family, a part of the family of God. He says, this is about all of you knowing God more fully. In fact, he says, following me, Jesus says, following me is actually about denying those other things, earthly blessing and prosperity and wealth and health. Like it's actually about taking up your cross and following me. Jesus says, it's about putting me first. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 10, he says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they would have life and they might have it more abundantly. He says, I want them to have life to the fullest. I want them to have an abundance of life. He's doing something greater than what we could understand. And this is the point. Point number two in scene number two is this. Jesus has been and will always be the greatest blessing. He is the ultimate reward. A relationship with Jesus is the greatest reward that we could have here on this earth. He is the greatest blessing that we could know here on this earth. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I want to know him only and the power of his resurrection and share in the fellowship of his suffering. It was this idea that knowing Jesus was the greatest fulfillment we could ever find in our lives. And that was true in the gospel, and it is still true for us today. So what is scene 3? Well, Jesus dies. He's risen again. He ascends into heaven and he says, when I go, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete will come. So now we who are saved are baptized by his spirit into his body. We are now the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. Later in Hebrews, it actually refers to us now as the peculiar people. And this is scene three. We live with an eternal purpose and promise. This is the here and now. And this is why this study has been so important because it's, it's, it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in the here and now on the earthly side of things. And so I want to be clear now that this might not be an, a, a popular opinion. This might not make for easy teaching or preaching, but this is important for us to understand when it comes to this idea of abundance and blessing. This is the observation that I can find in scripture. It is extremely rare 
to find a passage of scripture for the New Testament believer that promises exclusively earthly blessing, wealth, or prosperity. I want to say it again. It is extremely rare to find a passage written to the New Testament believer that promises exclusively earthly blessing, wealth, or prosperity. This is, this is so important for us to transform our way of thinking on this, to recognize in context, in fact, it's typically the opposite. Like the New Testament believer was not promised wealth or blessing or prosperity. And if we go into this new year setting all these goals, we set ourselves up for failure when we believe that God is going to physically, tangibly bless us with things here on this earth. We set ourselves up for failure one of two directions. Number one, we will look at God uh, in in pride and in spite when he doesn't do the thing that we want. Because we'll say, I lived righteously. I did uh, good. I did, uh, I've lived well. I followed your teaching. I followed your commands. And you still didn't do the thing I wanted you to do. That loved one still passed away. That loved one still got sick. That person still hurt me. I still lost my job. And I can look at God with pride and in spite and say, I did what I should do. You didn't do what you should do. Or the opposite, we can can look at circumstances and feel uh, self-loathing and in crippling doubt and think that we are to blame, just like in John chapter nine, when that person gets sick, when we do lose our job, when things aren't working out how we expect them to, if we have the wrong perspective about uh, earthly blessing and abundance, then we can look at this and go, I must be living in a wrong way for God to be judging me in this way. But the the New Testament is actually the opposite of that. It's this idea that the world is broken and therefore we will suffer, but that our suffering is not in vain. Look, everything in the New Testament from Romans to Revelation is a reflection that this world is broken, but that we don't lose heart because we no longer live for this world. Everything in the New Testament from Romans to Revelation is a reflection that the world is broken, but we don't lose heart because we don't live for this world. Romans chapter eight talks about it. He says, all of creation groans in anticipation of redemption. That word is that idea of like labor pains, that, that it's waiting for, for what's going to be birthed out of all of this pain. Romans chapter eight eighteen. he says, the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans chapter 12, he says, I want you to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And then he says, bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You see, it's the opposite of when God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless those that bless you, and I'm going to curse those that curse you. Now, now Paul is writing to the church in Rome, many of who were Israelites who had grown up hearing the Abrahamic covenant, and he says, bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He says, don't just bless those that bless you, bless those that curse you. And the, the same teaching was done in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, hey, turn the other cheek. He says, you've heard an eye for an eye. He says, no, 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 that's not the way we live anymore. You see, our call is no longer for more stuff or more satisfaction or more of our own glory or more of our own fulfillment or more of our own desires. Our call is more service. It's more sacrifice. It's more humility. It's more like Jesus. Last passage, Philippians 3, let this mind be in you, or Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, 
even the death of the cross. He says, have the mind of Christ, one of humility, of servanthood, of service, of sacrifice. And you say, okay, so I'm just supposed to deny myself any pleasure or, or happiness or joy or fun or satisfaction on this earth. Is that what it is? Just be a monk, move to the monastery, and just forget this life altogether? And as Paul would say, I would say, God forbid. Like, we were created to create. We are by nature cultivators and innovators and pioneers. We were born with an innate sense of passion and drive, and we are still and will always be in pursuit of abundance. That's a beautiful thing, and that's the way we were designed. It's the way we're created. The, the idea is not that we want more. It's what we want more of. See, the goal is that we would recognize living for Jesus living a life of sacrifice, of humility, of the fruit of the Spirit, of hope and joy and peace, a life of service to Him is actually the most fulfilling way we could ever live. Jesus came that we would have life to the fullest, and that is found in living in light of eternity. Our purpose, to live in light of eternity. The promise is that we have all we need to succeed in Jesus. You look at our eternal purpose, the eternal promise, Ephesians chapter one, we'll read these verses quickly. Blessed, he has blessed us in the heavenly places. Romans 15, uh, Paul says, I pray that you would overflow with hope. Second Corinthians chapter nine, that you would abound in every good work. Galatians chapter five, he talks about the war with the flesh and the spirit. And then he says, the fruit of the spirit, it's what he produces. The thing we seek abundance of is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In John 15, Jesus gives a precursor for that. He says, abide in me. He says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. Over the next month or so, we're going to talk about some of these things that we were called to abound in. One of those is found in Ephesians chapter 3, where we'll end the study today. He says at the end of it, Now unto him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to his power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. See, living the life of to the full, as Jesus says in John 10, 10, the life of abundance is about recognizing I have already been given more than I deserve and all that I need through a relationship with God in Christ. And there is nothing more fulfilling, nothing more rewarding than to live in light of his love towards me. The call for us today is to pursue more of what lasts and more of what matters. We all want to be more. We all want to do more. We all want to have more. But what if this year in 2024, we purposed to see abundance the way God sees it? Over the next month, we're going to look at what it is that God wants us to have more of. More fruit of His Spirit. More of the work that He has called us to. More of an eternal perspective. More hope. More uh, love. More joy. More peace more of him living in and through us. So let's be intentional this week, this month, this year, and moving forward, let's be intentional to pursue an abundance of Jesus. And let's see what he does in and through us as individuals and as a group. Can't wait to catch back up with you guys again next week as we continue in part two of this series on abundance. We'll talk to you then. Mm -hmm.